Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for our wonderful, merciful Savior. Uh, Lord, we thank you that we can just sing the song and express what is in our hearts. That truly, Lord, you are the one that, that we praise. You're the one that we adore. Uh, Lord, it is you whom we, we long and hunger for. We, and thank you, Lord, for allowing us to open up your word so that in your word we might know you, that we might know more of our Savior. Father, as we open up your book now, fill the, the thirst and hunger of our hearts that we would know more of Jesus and that we'd walk away having looked at your word, understanding the richness that we have, the, the fulfillment that we have, the satisfaction that we can have of, of Jesus Christ in us. Thank you, Lord, for your son. Thank you for this rich gift of your son and his word. I pray that your spirit would go before us Teach us and lead us into your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Brothers and sisters, take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke this morning. Luke chapter 20. We're going back to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 20. And we're going to look at verses 20 through 47. 20 through 47. It's 20 through the verse 20 all the way to the end of the chapter. And uh, if I didn't already get to warmly wish you a Merry Christmas uh, this past Friday, I, I do wish uh, Cindy and I and our family wish you all a, a, a Merry Christmas and, and a Happy New Year. And, uh, and uh, I know and I'm confident, and we're confident that that is, that is our guaranteed hope because of Jesus Christ. Well, I do hope that your Christmas was uh, full of Christ, that it was a, a Christmas that where Christ was. Um, of course, we always times we usually we remind ourselves that let's make sure that in celebration of Christmas we don't leave out Christ. And it is sad when we celebrate Christmas without Christ. We can sing all about what white Christmases and and think one of the wonders of Santa Claus or Rudolph the red-nosed reindeer or or all those kinds of mistletoes and those other trappings of Christmas. But if we don't have Christ, that would be sad, wouldn't it? But it's, there's something even sadder than that, than a Christmas without Christ. And that is Christians, Christians, those who profess to be Christians, who live their lives without Christ, who live their lives as, as, we, as throughout their daily lives each day without Christ having any impact in their life. I'm talking about Religious people, people who go to church, people who, who will say they pray, people who say, oh, I read my Bible, people who say they believe in God, who may even go through the motions of Christianity, who attend church regularly, well, at least online these days, or maybe even come in person. But though they are religious and go through the motions of Christians in their daily life and practice, there is little that reflects Jesus Christ in them. And this is a, a running kind of theme throughout the Gospels. Jesus warns of the hypocrisy of, of, of different of those who would follow him. You know, people who want to be part of the kingdom but don't want the, the, uh, the requirements of kingdom citizenship. They don't want to, they want to, <clears throat> they want to know him as Savior but not as Lord. They're pretending to be righteous without the righteousness that is in Christ. So as we end this year, it's fitting that we, uh, that we end with a reminder to set our sights again upon Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ is Lord. The great confession of the church from the very beginnings of the church is that one confesses 
that Jesus is Lord, that he is the Christ, that he is the one who has all authority and all power and all righteousness. It is in him that we submit to. And that's what this passage is for us this morning. It reminds us of the authority and lordship of Jesus. Because at the end of the day, and hopefully as we look at the sermon, we'll realize and remember that the end of the day or even the end of the year, when it's all said and done, when this life is over, what matters for the rest of eternity, and that is so much greater than just these 70, 80 years that we have, is not whether you confess Jesus as your inspiration or Jesus as your, your teacher or he's your guru or he's your pal or your friend or your buddy. Jesus is not just your pilot. Jesus is your, even more than just your savior. But then what matters for all eternity, what matters at the end of the day, end of the year, is that you confess that Jesus is Lord, that I confess that Jesus is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Now in the Bible, as we've been looking through the Gospel of Luke particularly, uh, the epitome of pretending to be righteous outwardly while inwardly being far from righteousness was manifested in the religious leaders of Israel. And in Jesus' final week of, on earth, which we're looking at in, uh, Luke, in the, Luke 20 here, he had uh, ridden in on the colt of a donkey into Jerusalem to the praise of the crowds. He had cleansed the temple of all the money changers, those who were selling and buying, those who were just walking through with their packages, kicking out all the UPS and FedEx guys. He was, uh, he had, was daily teaching in the temple, and he was doing all this in front of the religious leaders. He was stepping into the turf of these chief priests and scribes, the Sanhedrin. He was acting like he thought he was in charge of the temple or something. And that, of course, begins a series of exchanges between Jesus and the religious leaders over his authority. Who do you think you are? What authority do you have to do the things you're doing? Of course, the religious leaders wanted to kill Jesus. They wanted to get rid of him. They find one, so they tried a way to find a way to trap him, to discredit him through their questions. And in today's passage, uh, we see three different kind of questions and answers. Each one reveals Jesus' skill as a, as a teacher of God's truth. And read together, when we look at it, sometimes we look at each of these separately, and that's and you can do that. And that there's much to be learned from them as we look deeper into these texts. But if you take a, a broad overview of these texts, you just read them together. They speak to the authority and lordship of Jesus Christ, to which the religious leaders refuse to submit. And as we as readers today are faced, as we read this text, we too are confronted with the authority and lordship of Jesus in this, these questions and answers. And they all challenge us and they remind us and cause us to question ourselves. Do we, do I, submit to the lordship and authority of Christ? It's a great question to ask as we end the year. There are many other questions we might want to ask in this world, we might think about, but at the end of the day, at the end of the year, this is really the question that matters for all eternity. Do we acknowledge Jesus as Lord? So for an outline this morning, we're going to look at three questions, three answers that challenge 
all to acknowledge the authority and lordship of Jesus. Three questions and answers that challenge all to acknowledge the authority and lordship of Jesus. Question number one in verse 2026 20, is a question about taxes to Caesar. A question about taxes to Caesar. In verse 20, we're, uh, in, in for each of these points, we're going to look at the question and then the answer. And we find the, the question introduced to us in verses 20 to 22. Let's read. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be righteous in order that they might catch him in some statement so that they could deliver him to the rule and authority of the governor. They questioned him saying, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach correctly and, and you are not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? They, in verse 20 here, refers back to the scribes and chief priests in verse 19. The ruling council of the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin really. They had sent spies to watch Jesus. And the significant description of these spies is that they pretended to be righteous. They pretended to be sincere followers of Jesus. Who, while secretly denying his authority. They pretended to be sincere follows Jesus while looking to kill Jesus. They wanted to hand him over, it says here, to, to the rule and authority of the governor. That is Pontius Pilate. And why would they do that? The only reason why you want to hand them over is the Roman authority is because you want to have them killed. Because only the Roman authority had the power to kill, to execute people. Even as we see the reference here to the rule and authority of the governor, we are uh, just, just keep in mind here that there's a running theme throughout this passage of the authority, of this theme of authority. You know, it was they who questioned Jesus' authority, right? Why, why, is he, why are you doing all these things? And so they wanted to then hand him over to the Roman authority. So they, because in Jesus' uh, activities, he was stepping over what they perceived as their authority. So they want to ask Jesus this trick question, really, about the nature or subject of authority. First, they resort to flattery. You'll notice there uh, in verses 21, uh, uh, they kind of flat butter him up. They, they hourly acknowledge his authority. They call him teacher, in fact, the one who instructs others with truth and impartiality. And Jesus' teaching is full of truth and impartiality. It is so because he is the word of God in the flesh. He's uh, the word of God who is in the beginning with God, the word who became flesh and dwelt among us. But having insincerely but yet truthfully acknowledged Jesus' authority as a teacher, they then spring their trap in verse 22. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? It's one of those questions that, you know, it's just like very, it's a very relevant question. A lot of people have these kind of relevant questions, even in our world today, right? Say, hey, uh, is it okay to vote for that kind of person when they're like this? Is it okay to vote for that kind of person when he or she has this kind of uh, view on this? It's, it's these political questions, these societal questions that we think, is it right or wrong to do this or that? What does the Bible say about that? We have all sorts of questions, and there's no end to such questions. What, is, what, is, what do we think? Should we go to war or not? You know, what do you think? Should we invest or not? What do you think? It's just a lot of these kind of questions. They're just practical, relevant questions of life. But this was a, a trick question. It was, it was designed to trap Jesus. It's really an, it was it's set up as an either-or question with basically two choices. 
And the background of this, of course, is that every citizen of Judea, every citizen of the Roman Empire, really, was required to pay an annual tax, a poll tax, to the Roman emperor. Of course, people don't like taxes. I don't know too many of us that like taxes. You understand what it does, but people don't like taxes, especially if it's taxes from another country. You know, just imagine if, like, uh, if we were still being taxed by uh, Great Britain or we were being taxed by uh, uh, Mexico or Canada or we were being taxed by uh, China. We'd think, I don't want to pay that tax. They're not even my country. And that's how the Jewish people felt, paying this tax to Rome. No matter how Jesus would answer this question, whether they should pay the tax to Caesar or not, he would get in trouble, right? If he said they should pay the, the tax to Caesar, then he would be at odds with the Pharisees and most of the Jewish population who did not like that tax. But if he said that they should not pay, they shouldn't pay the tax to Caesar, then he would be at odds with the, the Herodians, the, the, ruling, uh, the ruling leaders of, of Israel, not to mention, of course, Rome ultimately. Despite the cleverness of their scheme, Jesus saw through it, of course. We see his answer in verse 23 to 26. 23 to 26. But he detected their trickery and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. And he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were unable to catch him in a saying in the presence of the people. And being amazed at his answer, they became silent. Jesus detected their trickery. Matthew records that Jesus perceived their malice. It was, this is not an honest, sincere question, but what does the Bible say about that? They wanted to trap Jesus in this question. And so Jesus replies by asking them to show him a denarius. The denarius was a silver coin that was minted by Rome. It was equivalent to basically a, a day's wage for an average, a, a typical laborer. And um, <clears throat> it was the exact coin, uh, this denarius, that each person had to pay to the poll tax. You couldn't pay it in shekels. You couldn't pay it in you know, other, any other uh, foreign government's uh, coinage. You had to pay it in the Roman denarius. No other coin was accepted. And so when the coin was brought forth, Jesus the Nass Whose likeness and inscription does it have? Well, if you had a denarius today, and I should have threw up a photo for you, but anyways, imprinted on, on each coin was the bust of Caesar, the emperor of Rome. Either it would be, in those days, it would either be the, the, the bust of uh, Tiberius Caesar or Augustus Caesar. His, Augustus was his father. But on Tiberius's coin was the inscription, this was uh, this one on the inscription. They have pictures of this. I saw a picture of this earlier. Tiberius Caesar Augustus son of the divine Augustus. So Caesar's image and inscription were on every denarius. Every tax that had to be paid was given, was paid in this coin that had Caesar's picture and inscription. Jesus then answers the question. And with that, he answered with one of the most profound statements in all scripture. It has so much application, so much relevance uh, for so many other questions. And he simply, Jesus says this, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And, and when you just see that, you hear it today, I'm still astounded by Jesus' answer. And they were all astounded. They were all amazed. Because the denarius had Caesar's image description. Therefore, yes, it belonged to Caesar. And so Jesus says, yeah, 
it's Caesar's, right? You got it from Caesar. He minted it. So somewhere along the way, you acquired it. Well, you need, if it's his, it has his picture name, you should give that to him then. And this is where, when we kind of get to this point, we usually start talking about our duty to submit to our government as Christians. And we're going to quote Romans 13, 1 to 7, 1 Peter 2, 13 to 17 for further instruction. But really, submission to the Roman government is not the main point of this text. That's the question. That's the smokescreen that these, <laughs> these uh, religious leaders come in. They want to know, should we pay the poll tax to them or not? The key point really is Jesus' latter statement. That's, that's where the gold is at here in this text. Render to God the things that are God's. What goes unsaid but understood by any Jew familiar with Genesis and any Christian, mind you, is that every human being bears the image of God according to the scriptures. According to Genesis 1, 26 to 27, God created man and woman in his own image and likeness. Therefore, every human being created in the image of God, all of us belong ultimately to God by the same logic that the denarius belongs to Caesar. We should therefore, as those created in the image of God, render our lives to God to serve him, to live for him. And that's every one of us, not just the Christians. And everyone fell silent at Jesus' response. And you can understand, he's so skillful. The religious leaders had come with their tricks, asking about political authority, but Jesus so skillfully turns it around and makes the point about divine authority. As those who are made in his image, are they submitting to God? Are they submitting to his anointed? Are they submitted to his son? You come and ask about politics. Jesus is not concerned about politics. Jesus is more concerned about the kingdom of God. And are you submitted to the king of that kingdom? And the same question could be asked of all of us today. Certainly, we have our disagreements probably with government at different times of life. And especially these days, a lot of COVID-19 restrictions placed upon, uh, uh, upon citizens of this world. And there are a lot of citizens that are, that are kind of resisting that. Even though we understand that government exists for our well-being and for protection. We've been asking ourselves a lot of questions about whether we should submit to this regulation or not. Basically, should we pay the poll tax or not? But the real question that matters is, are we submitting to our divine authority? Are we submitting to God? Let us choose always to submit to God and his son. Let us follow his ways and seek his will. And I believe and I trust that that will answer many of the questions we have in other areas of our life, in our world. Let us render to God the things that belong to God. That is our lives, our worship, our possessions, and our abilities and skills. Let us render them all to him. That's question number one. Question and answer number one. Points to Jesus' authority, God's authority as the Son of God. Another delegation that comes to Jesus with a, another question to challenge his authority. And then we find this in verse 27 to 40. In 27 to 40, we find a, not a question about marriage in the resurrection. A question about marriage in the resurrection. Again, we have the question and then followed by the answer. The question is found in verse 27, to 30, 27 through 33. Let's read that. Now there came to him some of the Sadducees 
who say that there is no resurrection. And they question him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies having a wife and he is childless, his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. Now there were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died childless, and the second and the third married her, and in the same way all seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died also. In the resurrection, therefore, which one's wife will she be? For all seven had married her. Again, another group comes, and again, they're all just like the spies earlier. These are, this is part of the same group. They're, they're all pretending to be righteous. They're not sincerely asking questions. They're trying to trap Jesus. And the Sadducees that are trying to trap Jesus here was a religious party to which belonged much of the aristocracy as well as the, the high priestly families among, uh, in Israel. These were the ones who controlled the temple, the temple whom Jesus had cleansed and was now teaching in, in the middle of. They controlled all the businesses that transacted there. And Luke points out that here, particularly that the Sadducees are those who basically don't believe in the resurrection. They do not believe in life after death. They were kind of theological liberals, you will say. They're basically like our liberals today, even who still deny the, anything that's supernatural. They're purely naturalists, materialists. And these, so, so these people who deny the resurrection, life after death, they, they, wanted, they came with a question they thought was like, they're kind of like uh, their, their go-to question to trap people into, uh, to show that, the, that, um, that they don't know anything about the scriptures. And uh, by the way, these Sadducees also, uh, also only believed in the first five books of Moses. They didn't really believe that the other books of the Old Testament were, were authoritative. And so uh, you'll see Jesus' skill later on. He's going to only teach them, speak to them from uh, the, the Pentateuch, the first five. Now, the Sadducees' question relates to the law of what's called levered marriage. And they uh, allude to Deuteronomy 25, verse 5 and 6. And this law was basically a law that God gave to ensure the continuation of a family inheritance when a man um, died, leaving a wife with no children. And in those cases, one of the unmarried uh, brothers of that man would then marry the widow and raise up children to, uh, uh, for his brother so that the inheritance might continue on. So with this in mind, the Sadducees asked their hypothetical question. An unlikely scenario, but nevertheless an unhypothetical one involving seven brothers. Possible, I, I, I guess. It's technically possible. And so the first marries a woman and dies leaving no children. The sec, in accordance with law, each then succeeding brothers, two, three, four, five, six, seven, marries her, but dies before leaving any children as well. Last of all, the woman dies. And so in life, she was the wife to all of them, right? But in the resurrection, they ask, whose wife will she be? That's the question. They're thinking, these Sadducees were thinking that when they are all resurrected, she can't be married to all seven of them, Right? Because that would be polygamy. That would be absurd almost. That's forbidden. But in their minds, and they had trapped Jesus. Either he must acknowledge that he was wrong about, he's wrong about the resurrection, or he must admit the possibility of polygamy in heaven. Mormonism, essentially. Jesus, however, does neither. And he gives another profound answer that uh, stupefies his, uh, his challengers. The answer is in verse 34 to 40. Let's look there, 34 to 40. Jesus said to them, 
The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot even die anymore, because they are like angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the burning bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Some of the scribes answered and said, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they did not have courage to question him any longer about anything. Uh, Jesus' answer is a kind of a two-part answer. First, he answers the Sadducees. Uh, who, he answers why their question is wrong. Why their question is wrong is the wrong question that uh, is incorrect to ask. Verse 34 and 36. Because he says, in the resurrection, you, the fact that you even asked this question, you're wrong because in the resurrection, there will be no marriage, Jesus states. So their question is actually moot. There is no need for marriage in the resurrection because there is no more death in the resurrection. When God powerfully transforms the bodies of his saints, they will receive glorified, resurrected bodies that will never die. 1 Corinthians 15, 42 and 43 is a place you might, place you might look at. And because glorified bodies don't die, they will not perish, there is no need for procreation. And no need for procreation, therefore no need for marriage in the resurrection. But second, Jesus answers their question by not only with why their question is wrong, but why their premise is wrong. That they, that they simply believe, that they believe that there is no resurrection. That premise is wrong. And Jesus quotes for them from the Pentateuch as well to prove the truthfulness of the resurrection. He recalls from them the passage on the burning bush where Moses saw the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, verse 6. And there God spoke to Moses in that burning bush. And he says, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And keep in mind, by the time Moses is standing before the burning bush, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were already dead. They had already died. But for God to say that he is their God, God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And he doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Implies that these men, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, are still alive. As Jesus puts it, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Luke, you'll note, for alone records the, little, the phrase at the very end, for all live to him. You see, before God, no one no one physically dies and then ceases to exist. You don't just, just, you just disappear into nothingness. Though many people want to believe that today. But even after death, the Bible teaches that our souls live on. That we have a soul. Either we will live on, and, and whether you're a believer or not, your soul will live on. The question is where you will live on. Will your soul live on in heaven with him, with God, or in hell without God? See, these Sadducees were truly were mistaken. They thought to come with a theological question that would confound Jesus. But instead, Jesus uses the question to challenge and convict them. There is a resurrection to life as sons of God. And the real question is, are they sons of God or sons of the devil? Because if they are truly sons of God, then they will know the resurrection. Or are they really sons of the devil and wouldn't have no resurrection to life, but a resurrection, yes, 
but a resurrection to eternal death, to separation from God in hell. See, those who pretend to be religious like these Sadducees are often asking those kind of tricky theological questions. But those who truly follow Jesus are concerned about being children of God, sons and daughters of God. That's a good question. What kind of person are you as a Christian? You know, it's, you know, it's not necessarily wrong to ask questions. Theological questions are fine. But sometimes asking theological questions, posing theological questions, is just simply smokescreen for unbelief. Jesus' answer to the Sadducees pointed out and revealed to them their rebellious heart, that they're not sons of God. They're sons of the devil. But thankfully, and, and they're wrong about the resurrection, but thankfully there is a resurrection because of Jesus. Not only because Jesus says so, as he does in this text, but because he is so. You recall in John eleven twenty-five to 27, in that it's just, which only took uh, place a few days before this event here, uh, or <laughs> took place previous to this event. John eleven twenty five twenty seven 27 um, uh, reads this. This is uh, regarding the, in the, the, the time when Jesus would have raised Lazarus from the dead. But Jesus goes to uh, Martha and he says these words. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? What a powerful promise. Jesus is the resurrection life. He's promising Martha that if she, everyone who believes in him will, never, will live even if they die. See, they all will, they will continue. There will be continued life. And what does Martha respond? Verse 27, she said to him, Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. Since he has been resurrected, Jesus has been resurrected, we who believe in him will also have the hope of resurrection. Note quite significantly how Martha responds. Her response is to believe that he is the Christ. He's asking, do you believe I'm the resurrection life? Do you believe in me? And she says, yes, I believe in you. And she clarifies that what that means by saying, I believe in you and that you are the Christ. You are the Son of God that comes into the world. You're the Messiah. And therefore, as the Christ, as the Son of God, as the King, her attitude is one of submission to him. See, the hope of resurrection is found in submitting to him as a child of God. That's what the Sadducees were lacking. But that's what is characteristic of all believers. And Jesus uses their question to show and reveal this truth. In the face of Jesus' authoritative answers, no one has uh, no left anything else to say. And so they just say, oh, you, you know, so the scribes say, oh, you've answered well. They, they actually believe in the resurrection, so they say, oh, Jesus, you answered that well, yes. So Jesus then with no one else asking a question, goes on the offensive with all religious leaders. There's Sadducees there, there's still Pharisees there, there's chief priests there, scribes there. All these religious leaders are there. So Jesus goes on offensive and poses all of them this question, his own question. And this third question and answer we find here is the question, a question about the lordship of the Christ, the lordship of Christ, in verse 41 to 47. The question is found in verse 41 to 44 of Luke 20. Then he said to them, How is it that they say the Christ is David's son? 
For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, David calls him Lord. And how is he his son? Because of the Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel 7, 1 Chronicles 17, Israelites believed that the Christ would be the son of David, that he would be a descendant of David. And while true, there's, there's more to this Christ than just the son of David. Jesus then quotes from the Messianic Psalm 110, Psalm 110 verse 1, which is attributed to King David. And if you look there in Psalm 110, verse 1 in your Bibles, you'll notice that the first word, Lord, the first instance of Lord here, is all capitalized. My Bible is small caps, but it's all capitalized. And when we see that in the Old Testament, it basically means that it's translating the name of God, the holy name of God, Yahweh or Jehovah. Therefore, David, under the is writing about what God says to the Messiah. And David, who would be the ancestor of this Messiah, calls the Messiah, my Lord. He's writing about what the Lord his God will say to his Lord, the Messiah. But one might, then so having, but maybe they didn't, never thought about it, but Jesus just kind of brings it out. How can David call one who is basically his son or his descendant, Lord? How can he call him Lord? You know, as parents, or grandparents, you don't go around calling your children or grandchildren Lord, do you? Well, at least I hope not. Because they're not in charge. You're in charge. You're their boss. You've been given authority over them as their parents and grandparents to teach them their ways and to instruct them how to live. Not them, you. So how can Christ, Jesus is asking, be both David's son and David's Lord. That's the question he poses to them. But you'll notice that Jesus doesn't actually specifically or uh, answer the question. He leaves it there unanswered for them, for them to chew on and ponder. And yet, as he asks the question, he challenges the religious leaders to a higher view of Christ. That he's not just the son of David, but that he must be the son of God. They had no answer, of course. But today we understand, believers, you and I understand today through progressive revelation, that the answer is because that Christ is not only David's son, but most importantly, he is God's son. He's not just human, but he's divine. That is why David, who writing, speaking of him, can refer to him as his son, as well as his Lord. Because Jesus, the Christ, is both human, 100% man, and 100% God. Therefore, as one who is 100% God particularly, he deserves our submission to his authority, just as David submitted to his authority. And you will even note that Psalm 110 verse 1 emphasized that God is going to make all of Christ's enemies bow down to him, submit to him one day. While Jesus doesn't give the answer specifically here, he does give an answer of sorts. And the answer is in verse 45 and 47 really. And we read this. And while all the people were listening, he said to the disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love respectful greetings in the marketplaces and chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets, who devour widows' houses and for appearance's sake offer long prayers. These will receive 
greater condemnation. Jesus answers, and he's kind of, he answers, he spreads, he now speaks not just to the religious leaders, but to the whole crowds, including the religious leaders. And he commands them to basically beware, watch out, be on guard for the scribes. The scribes were those who were responsible to teach the law of God. They're responsible for serving the Lord by teaching it and living it. But instead of serving the Lord, these scribes acted like they were lords. These teachers loved to be seen, Jesus says. They loved to be respected. They loved to be honored. They loved to be served. They loved to be perceived as righteous. And Jesus warns that these scribes will receive a greater condemnation. As teachers of the law who claim to know God's word, God will hold them to a greater accountability, not only in their, for their accurate teaching of it, but also in their daily living of it. Great parallel is James 3.1. Let's look that up when you have time. Instead of pointing people to God, the scribes and religious who drew people's attentions to themselves. Instead of seeing their position as a means to serve, they saw it as a means to be served, as a means of gain. Instead of praying in faith, they prayed in hypocrisy. They were not serving the Lord, but themselves. And the warning for the scribes is the warning for me. It's the warning for all of us who are teachers of God's word. That we would submit ourselves to the lordship and authority of Jesus Christ, not only by accurately teaching his word, but striving to live by it. See, it's not enough not just to say that Jesus is Lord, but we ought to live like Jesus is Lord. If Jesus is the Christ, then he is the Son of God, and therefore we ought to submit to him. The religious leaders who were all pretending to be righteous had completely missed this. But Jesus' teachings here just point them all back to the, his authority to render to God the things that are God's. To understand that resurrection belongs to those who are sons of God, those who submit to God. And that the Christ is not just the son of David, a descendant of David, a human being, but that he must be the son of God. And if he's the son of God, Who's waiting, who's going, who's waiting for all the, the nations, all his, his enemies to be made as a footstool under his feet, then it would, be, it would be wise to not be his enemy. It would be good to submit to him, to submit to his authority as Lord and King. The theme of Jesus' authority and, lo- and lordship run throughout these questions and answers. And the other church understood this that it was the resurrection of Jesus that confirmed that he is both Lord and Christ. We already read out of Acts chapter 2, uh, uh, for our call to worship. I'll read it again, just verse 34, 36. It was not David who was sent into heaven. See, David was not resurrected and went back to heaven. His body still in the grave. But instead it was Jesus. Jesus has been raised from the dead. And therefore, let everyone ought to know, let all of Israel know, let all the world know that God has made him, that is Jesus, both Lord and Christ, 
because of his resurrection. This Jesus whom you crucified by your sins, he says. Not only that, we, we see this in Romans chapter 1, verse 3, 4, the, the great book on the, uh, Paul's uh, work on the gospel. He says, he's writing concerning his son, God's son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. See, when God raised him from the dead, Jesus was declared the son of God. And at that point, everyone would, should acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. Therefore, and submit to him. And so the final question for us this year, this final Sunday of the year, is simply this. It's a great question to ask. And I hope you've answered it already, but it's a great question to ask. You can answer it again and again and again and just be reminded of, his, of the truth in your life. Is Jesus Christ your Lord? Is Jesus Christ your Lord? Is Jesus the King your Lord? It's fine to say he's the king, but is he your Lord? Do you submit to him? Have you submitted yourself to his authority and his, his rule over your life? One of the, in the, in the, the most clear, the most immediate response of that, the, the initial response of that should be that you have believed upon the Christ. And, that, and that's my follow-up question. Have you believed in he who is the Christ? Have you believed in Jesus Christ, that he's the resurrection and the life? Have you believed in the Son of God, as Martha did? You need to do that. You, for all of us are sinners, and, we're all, and we all fall short, and that's why Jesus Christ came. But have you believed that he is the Christ who comes, who has come to die for our sins, and who rose from the grave? And then, Having answered that first initial question, really, that reflects Jesus Christ as Lord, the second question is, how does your life reflect his lordship and authority? How does your life reflect his lordship and authority? If we're honest with ourselves, we all have areas of our life that we still need God's help to submit to him. There are areas of our life that we still wrestle with. We still wrestle to, to be um, a follower of Christ, an example of a follower of Christ's sin. We all fall short, and we still fall short. But let our attitude as those who submit to him be one of dependence upon him. Because we need to depend upon him, upon Christ, for the help that we need to reflect obedience and submission to him. Let us not be people who go around pretending to be righteous. Basically, people who never say, I never wrestle with sin, I'm good. All, we all got sin. We all wrestle at times. We all fall short at times. Let's be honest about our struggles. It's not that we want to sin, I hope, as Christians, but there are still struggles, aren't there? We can be honest about that. It is a spiritual battle, it is a fight. We must contend. But let us be honest, and as we depend, though, on the righteousness of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we do so not only for, that, for him and in him saving us, but also we do so in depends upon him to sanctify us, to make us more like himself. Let's do that this year. Let's pray. Let's confess Jesus as Lord. 
And let's look at our lives and see how we might live out our lives in reflection. So that when people see our lives, they, it reflects to what is simply what is, what is inscripted on our hearts. And what's placed is that we are created in the image of God. We belong to God. So let us render to God the things that are God's. Even while we fall short, but yet can depend upon him. Let's uh, respond with a final song. And then we'll have closing prayer.